Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. And one thing we love more than anything else here on ATP Stories is understanding the journey of a startup founder, especially when it comes to a journey that cuts across geographical borders. You know, launching a tech startup is hard enough on its own, but doing that in another country, a country you didn't necessarily grow up in, well, that's a double challenge. So here to help us understand the why of all of that is David Henderson, CEO and founder of Driver. Now, just a bit of background, Driver is, well, I'm sure he's going to give a better heads up on this, but I would describe it as a telematic software company used for optimizing auto fleets. And David will give us a better description, obviously, in a minute. And what makes this so fascinating is that he moved from Australia to Thailand to set this up. But it doesn't stop there. He's not from Australia originally, but from the Seychelles of all places. So before we dive in, David Henderson, welcome to the show. Thanks, Graham. Hi, everyone. It's fantastic that you're here. I mean, already there's questions that we have to ask moving from the Seychelles to Australia to Thailand. I'm sure there may be some other detours en route. So... Tell us a little bit about, first, where did you actually grow up? Did you grow up in the Seychelles or in Australia? I grew up in both. So I was born in the very beautiful East African tropical islands of the Seychelles. Um, I kind of left there with my, with my parents in the kind of early 1980s, kind of uh, political refugees, um, if you like, or, or uh, basically driven out by the uh, kind of government nationalizing um, my father's business. We then moved to um, the UK and we were there for about another four or five years and then moved out to Australia after that. Right. Where uh, were you based in Australia? Where did you live? In the lovely city of Melbourne. Right. Okay. That's interesting because, I mean, these days Melbourne comes up quite a lot when you talk about the startup scene in Australia, right? It seems to be booming, especially in the online space, right? So it seems to have its own startup scene. So it's interesting that you chose to move from Melbourne to Thailand. It's not an obvious transition, so maybe it is to you, but for those listeners who don't understand why an educated, ambitious entrepreneur would move from Melbourne to Thailand, tell us a little bit about the the why behind that move for you. Well, it's a question that I often get asked, and it's a very valid question. Um, So... Yes, the, definitely Melbourne has a has a booming sort of startup scene, and it's in, in it's competing with a uh, kind of uh, another city slightly to the north for uh, <laughs> the crown. Do they of, get a uh, mention you know, <laughs> or not? Yeah, <laughs> starts with an S and uh, ends with is it Can't a Y? Imagine. Not yeah. sure. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So look. From in in our case, I mean, I I I'm one of the founders of Driver. So there was myself and my other two co-founders, Eugene and Damien. We decided to uh, locate the business in Southeast Asia for a number of reasons. Basically, the, there's a very large automotive presence here in Southeast Asia. And I don't know if you know anything about Australia, but the automotive sector is um, very much in decline. And there were three manufacturers of, of uh, vehicles in Australia. Now there are none. So that, that is a sector very much in decline in, in Australia. And uh, it is still a, a growing sector in both Indonesia and Thailand and, and some of the other ASEAN countries. So that was one of the key reasons why we selected Thailand as a, as a uh, you know, as our base. 
Um, that's very specific to us, but there are other reasons why Thailand was chosen ahead of, say, Jakarta, which is also a valid choice for that sort of automotive space. Um, Thailand's, you know, in terms of bootstrapping a startup, it is much more affordable um, and cheaper to be based here in Thailand than, say, in Singapore. So Singapore, we would we, we were offered a um, a uh, accelerator program uh, and some funding to go to move to Singapore, uh, but we did the maths and we worked out that we'd probably spend all of that money in you know three to four months, mm. um, and the same money would keep us going for twelve months in Thailand. Thailand's a very attractive place for um, you know foreigners to come. Um, and, and live in Thailand. There's also quite a uh, quite quite a, a good tech scene here in Thailand. So there are many reasons why we we chose to locate here in Thailand. And our, our product is not aimed at the kind of domestic Thai market solely, but at the uh, at the broader sort of ASEAN Southeast Asian market. So did you start the business before you moved to Thailand, or did it happen afterwards? No, we started the business before we moved to Thailand. In Melbourne. In Melbourne, correct, and we decided to execute a pivot. So, at and originally, our business was aimed at um, essentially around driver behavior monitoring for insurance companies. Um, now, that was a there's only a small number of insurance companies in Australia, and it's basically dominated by two main players: the insurance sector. So, we found it quite difficult to get traction and also to get to get people to, to uh, you know, take our, our product in terms of our customers. That's the insurance companies. So we, we felt that there was a, a, a good opportunity here in Southeast Asia with the applying the same technology but to a different industry segment, which was actually fleet management and the uh, logistics um, sector. So, so that's what we did. Just so. before uh, – we'll go a bit more into detail in your business model in a minute. I'm just curious. You, there were three founders, you say. Three, there are Correct. three founders. Did any of you have experience in Thailand business-wise before you decided to take the leap of faith to set up there? So Damien, our CFO – was working with the British High Commission in Singapore, mm-hmm. and he had experience in both Thailand, actually in, in all ASEAN countries. So, right. but so he was actually helping with the operational setup of biz, of the uh, British High Commission's setup here in Thailand and also in in Myanmar, where we were very active, and other countries. Right. So, so where did that conversation come? Did who actually pitched the idea? Right. We're in Melbourne now. You know, we're out there pitching to, you know, probably a small group of insurance companies, as you say, maybe things will be easy in Thailand. Who actually came up with that idea? Was that just sort of one of those aha moments where you're sitting around? Or I'm just curious to know how that actually happened. Well, there was a, I mean, like, I'd love to say this was, this was a, you know, deeply thought out strategy that we uh, <laughs> executed, uh, you know, uh, to a, like clockwork, like the uh, German general staff or something like that. But, you know, uh, in the real world, things don't happen that way. It was a, it was a combination of both, you know, strategy, but also opportunistic mm. um, events occurring. So, I mean, I, I was on holiday at here in Thailand. Um, my brother, uh, who I should mention as well, lives here in Bangkok and has lived here for many years. So it wasn't as if we were just completely um, turning up with knowing no one and in a in a totally strange city. Right. So we did we did have that sort of. Uh, he he then introduced us to some local contacts. Uh, we discussed that. We sat down and discussed what the needs were with some of their contacts, um, and then we identified that there was a gap in the market. 
So I've been doing similar sort of things um, in the telematics space for the last five to six years now with um, another company in Australia. So I decided to do my own thing, and I thought we thought that uh, Southeast Asia was um, was the 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 growth market for this sort of technology. Right. So when that idea was pitched internally, when you three founders had that discussion, was it something which was an easy option for you? I mean, I know you've lived in a number of different countries, so it's not like a completely new scenario for you. But you are moving from Australia to Thailand. I know you had your brother there as well. I'm just curious to know, was it very easy for you to make that decision? Or did you have to, you know, go and do all the background research? Because this is something that faces a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, especially when thinking about Asia. Often when they get there, they realize actually a lot of what they were worried about, well, that sort of evaporates and they realize it's just as developed as a lot of countries they've been used to. I'm just curious to know what your thought processes were before you moved out there. Yeah, I mean, look, this definitely wasn't a kind of spur of the moment, sort of let's pack our bags and except for maybe Eugene, our technical co-founder, but um, (laughs) myself and Damien did put a lot of thought into this and, uh, you know, there was, um, you know, we we did research on this on what – you know, and we spoke to the Thailand Board of Investment. We met with them several times, and yeah, unfortunately, that that BOI um, organization, which is quite useful and handy when you're in Australia, is not as useful in Thailand itself. Hmm. So things were much more difficult than we had anticipated when we landed. But uh, anyway, that's all part of the journey, right? You live and learn. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk a bit about what exactly driver is. I mean, you mentioned telematics. I mean, you've been in the telematics industry for a number of yes. years. I mean, I come from a telecoms background, so I've heard mm-hmm. telematics from you know, 15, 20 years back. It's been a word that's been around. But for those people who are listening who might not know exactly what it is or have heard it and need a better definition, can you kind of help us understand what exactly we're talking about here? For sure. Uh, I mean, this is, a, again, one of these kind of uh, nebulous terms like IoT or, uh, you know, um, big data, which is sort of thrown around. Um, it's a, lo- a little bit less popular than it used to be, and it's not one of the latest buzzwords. But essentially, it's about collecting data from vehicles um, and mostly around data for driver behavior and, and, and to improve the cost of operating a fleet of vehicles. So, the traditional telematic solutions um, were developed back in the 1990s, and this is about pushing a button in your, you know, Cadillac or Chevrolet, and and having Batman turn up when you had an accident. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, that was that was the original OnStar sort of first application of telematics. It's just a, a, a essentially a, a push button solution in the car that allowed you to connect the vehicle to to the outside world. That's now moved on to things like. Um, harvesting data from the vehicle like when the check engine light comes on diagnostics data driver behavior information um and and one of the, the kind of leading telematics companies if you like is is tesla um in the u.s so uh, a lot of what they're doing would not be possible without telematics and the connected car which is what it's often referred to as now so what driver is doing which is a little bit different is that we've taken the a lot of these concepts of you know, collecting data from the vehicle and analyzing that data, and we've we've localized that for the Southeast Asian market. So what what I mean by that is we've laid on top gamification, so that when you play this data back to the people who are interested in it, the fleet managers, the drivers, these sort of people, you don't just send an Excel spreadsheet. We actually create a 
a league table of who's the best driver, who's the most efficient driver. And one of the reasons we do that is we found that um, there's a big problem here with people stealing fuel. Mm. So that's something that we're not really that familiar with in Australia or perhaps Japan. But in Southeast Asia, it's, it's, a, it's a big issue. And it, it's roughly 25% of all fuel is um, pilfered, wow, which is a, big very, a huge amount of fuel. And what we found initially was that, okay, we can, we can highlight that to um, the fleet operators. And we can even tell them who's stealing that fuel to, to some extent. But you know, the, what, I, what I heard from one of the fleet managers was, well, if we, if we sacked every driver who was stealing fuel, we wouldn't have any drivers left. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so that carrot and stick approach, or the stick sort of approach, doesn't really work. So that's why we laid on, on top of our, our system gamification to try and encourage the right behavior. And it works really well in the culture in Southeast Asia as well. How, how would you do that? I mean, how would you actually gamify driver behavior such that, you know, they were incentivized not to steal fuel? Because stealing, I mean, fuel is obviously a valuable commodity for them compared to, I guess, some of the wages that some of these drivers are on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, it's a, it's a real challenge. But what we try and do is we work, there's two approaches we take. One of them is to work with the HR department of the company and encourage a program where people who are at the top of these league tables are financially rewarded for doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. The, that doesn't isn't something that's always welcome to say the you know the elderly Chinese guy who's running the logistics operation we're working with, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the um, the other thing that we do is we use peer group pressure. So nobody wants to to you know there is actually um, it, this gamification works because people see other people doing well or they actually want to get a picture of themselves with the, the company CEO or, or appear in the company newsletter. Um, and, and it's not so much the financial reward but the actual, um, you know, the, the prestige and the fact that they look good in front of their colleagues. Right, exactly. So is your solution a driver a software solution or do you have a box as well that sits inside the vehicle? So, so we can do either the full end-to-end solution, which includes a box, but we, we don't provide or we don't manufacture those boxes ourselves. Mm. That's a, that's a great way to go out of business is to start a hardware startup. So, you know, <laughs> there's plenty of people doing it as well, right? So. Well, yeah, it's a it's a tough game to be in, but uh, yeah, that's not something that we're doing at the moment. We we source different devices from uh, from um, reputable suppliers. Mm-hmm. Um, where what we do is we we're a SaaS business. We charge a monthly subscription to our customers. They can cancel at any time with, with 90 days notice. Um, and yet we, we haven't had any churn so far. So our customers are really happy with our service. And we get most of our business through referral and word of mouth. Okay. So I know you came from a telematics background. Did you, when you were doing that, did you see something when you were working on the other side and said, yes, this is going to be a great business idea. I've got to go and start my own business. How did the how did the genesis of driver actually happen? I know you said there was a pivot as well, so maybe it's different to what it is today slightly. Can you tell us a little bit about how the thing actually started? Yeah, so um, our chief architect Eugene um, and I were working together at Intelematics three years ago now. Uh, well, it was would have been four years ago when this kind of concept originally started. So what what we saw was that. Intelematics is a great company with lots of great people working there, but they're owned by one of the auto clubs. So the auto, what I mean by that is the guys who help you at the side of the road when you're broken down. So you ring them up. These are mostly companies that are 100, 100 years old or you know, 80 years old in the case of the RACV. They're, they have their own 
agenda, and these organizations tend to be quite um, quite political. So they're not primarily focused on, say, um, you know, a profit-focused business or even have an, a kind of underlying purpose. They're there to serve the interests of their members, which is interpreted by elderly guys living in, you know, the Yarra Valley outside of uh, Melbourne. <laughs> so the, the, they tend to be quite narrow-focused. So we, we felt that there was a huge opportunity to apply this technology to Southeast Asia. We did some research. There weren't many people doing this in South, the Southeast Asian market. Um, so we we thought that we wanted to actually make a difference to the world, and we could do so by reducing the amount of uh, fuel that's being used and making the roads safer. So in Thailand, for example, it's the the world's second most dangerous roads. Yeah. Thousands of people die on the roads each year in Thailand. By ap- applying our technology, we are in a small way helping to make the roads safer. Mm. I mean, it's shocking, really, isn't it, when you look at the the figures for Thailand compared to anywhere else in the world you know just how much of a factor that is especially if you're young if you're young and tie the mortality rates on the road are just i don't have the figures in front of me but i mean compared to a developed economy compared to australia at least probably 10 times or more per head i don't know the exact figures but i mean i looked at them recently yeah, it's I mean, shockingly high in thailand i mean and, and what's even more amazing is the the general attitude of people who've had a near miss. Right. Like you get maybe two or three people on the back of a motorcycle and, you know, who were in, in, involved in a, in a you know, near-death accident. And instead of, you know, being shocked or, uh, you know, uh, horrified by what's just happened, they'll just have a laugh, walk and walk right. off. You know, it's, it's quite <laughs> fatalistic, isn't it? It's like, okay. well, my number didn't come up. I'm lucky. I yeah, need to find lucky out. day today. Yeah, let's have another whiskey. Exactly. So I'm curious, I mean, in that context is, you know, I'm just going to sort of try and see it from the other side here. I mean, telematics is great when you have a population of people where you can make that kind of impact. I'm just curious to know, can that change when you have these kind of embedded cultural behaviors or norms, which I don't know, you obviously know this market better than anybody else, but where you have those kind of behaviors, can telematics actually, you know, can actually, you know, crunching this data actually make an impact and change behavior on that side of things you know where where people are so they, they can be quite reckless compared to what we're used to in other countries well, well that's an interesting question because i mean i often see that look the thai government believes so not not ne- that doesn't necessarily mean that i agree with the thai government <laughs> but um you know for example one of the things i often see is a bus traveling at around 150 kilometers an hour with a sticker on the back saying gps tracking by dtc or who, whoever it is right right so look the reality is that a lot of this stuff is not well implemented it's not properly um if if it is implemented then there's no policies or procedures around it the data just gets sent to the uh, department of land transport and sits in a in a in a data center somewhere with nobody doing anything about it mm-hmm. so where we're different at driver is that we understand the local the local culture and we actually 
try and work with companies to make a difference. If there's somebody speeding recklessly or driving dangerously, then we have we we would immediately send an alert to the owner of that company, to the manager of the company, and and you know we we can work with them to understand how you know to show them how they can improve their business. So having um, your vehicle off off the road for you know a day or two days because of an accident costs money. I mean that means that you're you're no longer able to to meet your customers' needs because you can't deliver your product to them anymore. So you you're you as a business are losing money. To, on the individual driver's side, um, you know, this gamification concept that we're in the process of implementing has made a big difference so far. So, yeah, that's, we, we think that there's definitely the potential for technology, but localized to the needs of Thailand and Myanmar and other countries to make a difference. Okay, I'll, I want to ask you about Myanmar in a minute because, I mean, that's just a, a fascinating addition to your story as well. So, we'll come to that in a minute. Just curious, put this into context, switch gears a little bit, talk about the business itself. So how long has Driver been up and running? So Driver's been um, up and running in its sort of current form for just under two years now. Right. That's in Thailand, right? Based in Bangkok. So just to uh, – Driver has a parent company which is in Hong Kong. Like almost every startup in right. Thailand, we are either Hong Kong or Singaporean registered companies okay that just that that's an administrative thing but you are operationally Correct. based in bangkok so yes. you've been up and running two years are you self-funded do you have seed funding how does that work with you so we have a great group of investors uh some of which were the very early sort of angel investors are or the family and friends of mine in mostly in australia um and then we have a group of angel investors in hong kong um, I'm a regular visitor to Hong Kong. Those guys, um, Arnold and Lewis and Co., give us a lot of support and uh, have also provided uh, funding for us as well. So we are driver who's seeking uh, investment at the moment. So we have, uh, you know, we are looking for uh, around three hundred thousand US dollars to um, extend us to the next next stage. Okay. So just on that note. Interesting to know, especially with the decisions that you've made with Driver. I mean, how much longer $300,000 will last you in Bangkok compared to, let's say, you had your operational base in Melbourne. Is it tangibly different? I mean, give us an idea. I mean, as a comparison, how, how much longer will that money last you in a place like Bangkok than it would back home? So in in Australia, that would last us. Um, I mean, we, so we have an existing team. Uh, well, our team in, is currently fifteen. Um, so if we had a team of fifteen people in Melbourne, um, you know, three hundred k would last us about a month and a half, two months. Yeah. In in uh, in Thailand, that lasts us around twelve months. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, the difference there. I mean, is there any difference? Are you, you sort of getting in local programmers, local software developers, can you get that kind of talent in Thailand? Because people may argue, well, you know, they cost more in Melbourne, but the quality's higher. Uh, uh, I mean, look, the, people do say that, but uh, we, we have a mixed team of both Thais and foreigners. Um, and I think you can get high-quality developers here in Thailand. Um, unfortunately, due to some decisions we've made about our technology stack, it's much harder for us than than uh, other sort of uh, startups because we're using a, you know, Scala uh, amongst other things, which are, are not easy to source here in Thailand. Mm-hmm. But your point earlier about lasting 12 months as opposed to, I mean, even at most two months in Melbourne. So that's a factor of six. I mean. That's phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, 
that just goes to show you, it's not just about money, but that's buying you time, isn't it? And these things take time. These things, sometimes they have their own cycle, which takes a bit of time. And you, you know, you have to go out there and do the business development work and get the clients on board and so on. So it's just, I mean, fascinating to see that kind of, you know, giving you that extra runway to to build your business in Thailand. And if you were to shift that back to, to Melbourne, the money would be gone very, very quickly. So does that sort of give you a bit of breathing space to do the kind of things you wouldn't do if you were running a startup in Melbourne? Would you do things differently? Do you have the luxury to do things that maybe some of your founder friends back in Melbourne can't do because the burn rate is so fast? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I would love to say yes, absolutely. That gives us a lot more more luxury, but <laughs> we have different a different set of problems here to deal with um, from what we would be dealing with in, in Melbourne. So, like for example, in B two B sales, which is B two B where we we're at at the moment, um, it's there's a much longer lead time to get customers on board here. So I, um, I, you know, it's very difficult to convince people to take an early stage product. So we actually have to build out the product to a, you know, the, the concept of having an MVP and just showing people a wireframe and then them signing up for you is something that's not realistic and not going to happen uh, to my experience in Southeast Asia. So we do need to build out the product, which means that you then have to take on a bit more risk. So you may end up building something which may not be suitable um, or might only be suitable for a smaller subset of customers. So there's pros and cons. Okay, okay. So the burn rate may be slower in Southeast Asia, but the actual sales cycle is longer. That's what you're saying, because they're less likely to jump at an early stage project uh, you know, compared to back in Melbourne, where they may be more used to people, you know, knocking at their door and pitching more of what would be an MVP in traditional sense, right? Absolutely. And people are much less forgiving of, uh, of um, mistakes here, if you like. So there's a, a deeply ingrained culture, but both in Myanmar and Thailand of, you know, and it's totally, um, it doesn't, it's not very productive. It is punishing people for making mistakes or if something goes wrong then you just cancel the project and that's the end of it type thing which isn't isn't very helpful and doesn't help people learn from experience right so i want to ask you about that myanmar factor because you have a presence now in myanmar just tell us a little bit about that do you spend a lot of time out there because i haven't been to myanmar it's like the one country in southeast asia i haven't visited so i'm curious to know what it's like to take driver to Myanmar because Thailand's one thing. I mean, we've talked about some of the challenges of being in Thailand, but I know Myanmar is like the place right now. Everybody seems to be talking about it as the next Thailand. You know, we're looking at, you know, you just look at the internet penetration rates. They are increasing by a factor of zero every yeah, but, you know, it's going from like 1% to 10%. We're not sort of talking 70 80 90%, right? It's still early days. How has that been for you? So share some of your stories from doing business in Myanmar. Well, Myanmar is an awesome place. I really like visiting Myanmar. Um, I, I'm visiting Myanmar a lot less than I used to. When we, when we first – in fact, Driver was launched first in Myanmar before Thailand. So there, there's a reason for that. So Myanmar um, is at a, an earlier stage of development um, than Thailand. So people are going there from pen and paper right into a you know 
21st century mobile first approach so it's actually one of the most awesome places to release a new product because you know your competitor solutions are you know something from 10 years ago mm-hmm. the there isn't this hangover of legacy sort of processes and and uh, systems so we in thailand we have to deal a lot with legacy systems um, maybe from from 10 20 years ago people use a lot of oracle and these kind of outdated solutions so you know the 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 we don't have that in thailand in myanmar so and and also people are very very interested in new technologies and just to slightly correct what you were saying there about the penetration rate so penetration rate now for mobiles is actually around 70% Go so if you take a look at the philippines for example the philippines is um you know the the economy is growing there, but the mobile phone coverage and mobile penetration is stagnated there. That there's a duopoly of these two telcos that really have done nothing for years, right? In 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 um in Myanmar, MPT and um, Telenor have been growing in leaps and bounds. Even Oradu is growing. Hmm. So. Is it easier to do business in a place like Myanmar than it is in a more developed market like Bangkok or Thailand particularly because you have this situation where people, you know, they're leapfrogging many of these sort of legacy systems which have been around. I mean, they're they're sort of bypassing the fixed line internet and going straight to mobile or, you know, they're going straight to these mobile application solutions that you're involved in. Do you find that the case? Well, I mean, and again, it's not one of these clear-cut, absolutely, definitely, Myanmar is a better option. If that was the case, then we would be have our HQ in Myanmar, and now we'd be focusing our efforts there. Um, so it's both – there are some very compelling reasons to be in Myanmar, but then there are also um, other less attractive things about the country. So – People say that the uh, you know people complain about Thai bureaucracy and the the government here, but compared to Myanmar, it's mm-hmm. it's a breeze here in Thailand. Exactly. <laughs> so well, this is Myanmar- the growing pains associated with any kind of developing economy, isn't it? Well, yes, and look, Myanmar is not, is not ranked 182 in the world for the ease of doing business for, <laughs> for, for, for no reason. Look, I mean, trying to set up a company there involves uh, hi- hiring a local agent who then goes around with a bag of cash to various <laughs> police departments and government offices to get stamps, and it just takes weeks. I mean, it's um, it's a it's a very uh, um, difficult and convoluted place, and and the the Things like the tax regime aren't very friendly either to startups, and they've just changed the visa 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 situation there. So now it's incredibly expensive to get a visa to to stay in Myanmar um, and to work legally there. So it's yeah, it's it's a much less attractive place to be from a um, you know in terms of those sort of things. So the ease of doing business is very difficult in Myanmar, but the people are great. The, uh, you know, at some point they'll try and sort some of these situations, this, these sort of issues out. Yeah, for sure. Hey, I'm just curious, David, is that when you talk about Myanmar just now, and you talk about some of the, the challenges facing people like yourself, entrepreneurs who are trying to get things done, a lot of red tape, a lot of barriers associated to growing a company, etc. Obviously, the people are up for it, but you know maybe there's a system which has to be dealt with, and, and so on. I think people outside of Asia kind of have that image of Asia generally, that they they feel it's this place that is, you know, very heavy on bureaucracy. 
is very isn't as pro business as maybe they would expect in Australia, especially or the U.S. or in Europe, for example. When you have visitors come to Thailand, do you find that they're surprised by how it is there? Really, are their expectations challenged by these assumptions that they have about Asia and doing business in Asia, and particularly for yourself as well? When you first, you know, set up there. Did you find that you know maybe you had these kind of expectations of what Asia is like for doing business and, and found it to be different to that? Well, I mean, I th- look to be honest, I wasn't. I was a little bit surprised about how uh, inefficient things are. So, I mean, you walk into the business of uh, the sort of Department of Business Development in Thailand, and there's a whole bunch of people sitting there with typewriters. Hmm. So this is Digital Thailand 4.0. Well, uh, and we they have even that have, in Japan yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, oh, really? typewriters. We have people using faxes. So, wow, that's incredible. Um, so, I guess if you're from Japan, that's probably not too much of a surprise. <laughs> but you know, people gripe a lot about the uh, government wherever they are, whether it's the US or in Australia. But here, you, it's you know, the part of the problem is it's it's quite intrusive, right? So the government just doesn't isn't there to really help businesses. It seems to be a more of a hindrance. Mm. So there's all of these problems about getting visas for staff. There's lots of audits and, and paperwork and bureaucracy. So I, I have a staff member who's like pretty much full time committed to, you know, filling out forms for various Thai government agents. Right. You know, it's just a, it's a real um, fixer. But yeah, it's exactly. like, I mean, if you if you were to do business in Spain, it would be pretty much the same. You know, even, True. Exactly. You'd need a fixer who can kind of negotiate the the unwritten parts of the system, the gaps, if you like. I mean, yes. just sort of moving forward from that, the, the people in general. I mean, beyond the the infrastructure and the the institutions, the Thai people, in terms of doing business. You know, compared to, let's say, you know, your experience in Australia, do you find a difference in attitude towards business there, particularly with, the, you know, the entrepreneurs that you associate with in Thailand? Do they have a different way of thinking about business or is it something that maybe Australian entrepreneurs would be very familiar with? Well, I mean, one of the things that's that's a bit I mean, this is arguable, again, about how different it is. But to me, it's very much more face to face business here. Mm-hmm. Um Trust is much more of an important factor, and it not necessarily price is the key factor in things. So, you know, you, you need to meet with your customers. It might take, it's certainly in B two B space, it takes at least two to three meetings before you'll you'll get any sort of, uh, um, you know, any sort of agreement or or moving forwards with anything. So, yeah, there, there's definitely differences. It's much harder to do things things like e commerce or to sell things online, especially the businesses. So, like. Many, like we, for example, don't have a debit card for for our business, even though we would like to get one. But it seems to be very difficult to to get even that sort of uh, thing. If anyone has a has a, uh, a startup in in banking, you know, Thailand's a very difficult place to get going with that sort of thing. But it's somewhere which is crying out for a bit of uh, <laughs> someone to simplify those processes and make things a bit more innovative. Right, that's probably where you'll see people leapfrog. The traditional system, right? I mean, you're talking about that in Myanmar with leapfrogging fixed line internet. You're starting to see these kind of technologies now looking at these established infrastructures and just leapfrog, for example, what people know in the traditional banking system. And that may well happen in places like Asia. 
you know, I, I'm curious as well. I mean, my experience of Asia in business, like yourself, has been, you know, it's, it's never been one or the other. It's been a mix of both the good and the challenges. You know, the challenges being the things that you talked about. I always, I think on, on balance, think of it as a positive thing. I found, you know, one thing that always attracts me to doing business in Asia, outside of Japan particularly, is their natural entrepreneurialism. You know, I've mm. always found that there's a different kind of entrepreneurialism as well. I mean, I know, for example, in Thailand, you have a lot of the second generation people, you know, that their parents have made money in retail, that kind of thing, or in, in auto, and now they're going to try something out online. But there's a real hustle that I find in Asia that you don't necessarily get so much in other countries that, you know, people, I don't know if it's a, a need or a necessity, but people seem to hustle a lot more and seem to want to get things yeah. done. I don't know. What was your experience of that? Is that sort of a just rose tinted glasses or, you know, now that you're in the thick of it, is it actually like that for you? No, no, I would agree. I mean, I, I think it's definitely the that demographic of the kind of second or third generation People are exactly the kind of people who do have that hustle and want to get want to get things done and want to change. But look, the other thing, um, and talking about it from a kind of Western Westerner point of view, coming into a country like Thailand is, as a as a foreigner, there are just so many more opportunities for you here in Thailand, and you can get. Um, you know, I've I've met with Bill Heineke, who's the the owner of Miner Group, one of the richest men in Thailand. The chances of that happening in Australia are nil, right? Mm. So, the opportunities here for for foreigners who want to get things done, who are entrepreneurial, um, and even for for you know second or third generation Thais, um, are, are much much greater. So, there's in some ways in in certain areas more social mobility than there are in in other countries like australia so i mean a lot of the opportunities are already snapped up there so there's not much you can you can really do that said in in certain areas in thailand it's a closed shop and there's no no chance for any foreigners so for example financial services agriculture um there are other sectors like that that you just haven't got a hope in hell of getting anywhere mm. Very interesting observation. That so, I mean, if I was uh, if I was a young, well, not necessarily young, but if I was a startup founder and I was considering moving to Thailand, maybe I'm based in Melbourne. I've listened to this story. I've listened to David Henderson's story, and it's planted a seed in my mind. What what sort of advice would you offer that startup founder before they make the move? Is there conditions under which they probably shouldn't do it? other conditions under which they probably should do it. How would you offer them any kind of advice in that situation? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things that are very important. So you need to have a good support network of family and friends who support and believe in what you're doing. Um, you also need to have some funding. So you can't just turn up in Thailand with a, you know, a, 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 some elephant print pants and a Buddha statue around your neck. It's, <laughs> you know, you can get those here in Copenhagen. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the idea of it, that it's going to be sitting on the beach and doing a holiday here in, and being on holiday here in Thailand is the wrong sort of approach. Um, the I've met a lot of, of uh, tech founders, both Thais and foreigners. With the foreigners, they tend to be two people. They're either building something for the Thai market, or else they're building something for their for their home home market. So, in the latter, and the vast majority of people are, you know, like say a small startup of half a dozen Polish guys I met recently who were building something here in Thailand for Poland because you know they wanted to. Being a, in a warmer place over winter, it's you know two dollars a day to be in a co-working space. They could uh, could just um, you know 
create a product here in Thailand in six months for fifty thousand hmm. dollars. That's just not credible or realistic in in uh, in many other places. So those kind of things are much much easier than it is to say penetrate the the Thai market or the sort of more Southeast Asian market. So if you if you're building an app in you know for for Australia or wherever, then go to Chiang Mai or whatever coast of Mui for six months. There's lots of nice co-working spaces. You can get stuff done pretty easily and quickly. But if you want to um, get into the Thai market, then it's absolutely critical that you have Thai staff. You cannot, you know, come into Thailand and be successful in any way without having, um, you know, a good understanding of the local culture. So you really need to have some Thai staff. It's it's a very important to get those people as soon as possible and have good and reliable people. Mm. Uh, and I'm talking primarily on the business side. You will also ideally have some developers as well. But yeah, look, it's I. Uh, what I found a lot of Thai startup founders, they tend to be very young. So, like, I mean, in their early 20s. So people, when I when I go to pitch to some of the kind of funding events, here's some of these elderly Thai guys, they say to me, well, why are you a startup founder? You're in your 40s. Mm. And I say, well, that's the best time to be a startup founder because you actually already know a bit about business and you're much less likely to fail than somebody who's just founded a business um, and they're straight out of university and has absolutely no experience. Does that make it uh, – because I'm curious what kind of person it takes to make this work, to move from another country to a place like Thailand. You mentioned you've got the experience and probably not just business experience but you know life experience as well. You've got a lot more to play from, right? You, you know, you've experienced a lot more. You know how to deal with these situations. You, you see a lot of people come to Thailand. Do you see any kind of pattern in the people that make success here? Do they have a certain kind of attitude? Have you found that with yourself that maybe you've had to sort of challenge your own views as well? And, and you know, going to a place is always a challenge, isn't it? You step outside your comfort zone. You're always having to force yourself to you know be a better person and, and learn and, and not sort of slip back into your old ways. So I'm just curious to know is that, you know, coming to a place like Thailand, are there a certain type of people who are more likely to be successful in the entrepreneur scene there? Well, I, I mean, I, I wish I could answer that question, but, but I can't really answer that question directly. But what I will say is that um, if you look at the stats for um, six funder, f- startups that have got funding, um, and I'm talking about like they've got to series C, um, in Thailand, for example, every single one of those startups, bar none, um, is founded by foreigners. Hmm. So there is a good opportunity here. In Tha- but they just to, just to to uh, um, clarify that they also have like some Thai founders or some very senior Thai staff in that organization. So you can't do it by yourself. You need to have uh, you need to partner with Thais. Um, and there are some great, you know, some some really good examples of some great startups here in Thailand that have been very successful. I mean, like Agoda, for example, is yeah. obviously one of the great sort of startups in the world, and they're based there from here, from Thailand. Yeah, yeah ma- not many, many people others. know that as well. That's the thing. No, right? I mean, outside of Thailand, people wouldn't. They might have thought it was an Australian company or based in Singapore, but there you go. 
Absolutely, uh, Angry Bird. The guys from Angry Birds, Rovio or Roxio, whatever. They, they they spend three to four months a year here in Thailand. Yeah. Um. So that story can be you know partially credited towards towards Thailand. But what I find is that you need patience here in Thailand. So if you're this kind of take this kind of aggressive uh, approach to doing business, then you know people don't don't uh, you need you need to keep a calm voice. You need to to. <laughs> You know, be nice to people. People here in Thailand are very nice. They're lovely people overall, and they don't really like being shouted at or being, uh, uh, you know, people pointing at them saying, you do this right now. That doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work anywhere, but it's much less likely to work here in Thailand. Yeah, be nice I, to people. Be patient. Uh, things will come your way, and, and it'll, but it'll take longer than you have ever planned for. Well, that's great advice. As everything that you shared with us today, David. That's David Henderson, everybody, CEO of Driver. David, thanks so much for coming onto the show and sharing your journey with us and offering us words of wisdom, especially for those who may be considering doing the same. David, before I let you go, we want you to share a link where people can go and find out a bit more about you. Where can we find out more about David Henderson? Uh, probably best drvr.co. That's the best starting point. Details in the show notes. And we wish you all the best with your journey with Driver. Obviously, it's a very interesting one because you've chosen an unorthodox route in what you're doing. And I think it's fascinating your journey, both as an individual entrepreneur, but also as a team making that happen. And now you're going for funding as well. Anybody that's listening to the show that may be interested in getting in touch, they can go to that website which we'll put into the show notes make contact with david i'm sure david would be happy to talk to anybody on that in that respect and david please come back as well i mean we want to hear how this journey unfolds because i'm sure there's a lot more to it you know there's a lot more that we're going to learn in the next six months 12 months so please come back onto asia tech podcast and share your updates with us thank you very much for joining us on the show today david Thank you very much, Graham. Very much appreciate your time and thank you to the listeners. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.